So, Will. Yes? The summer camp in this movie is not really a summer camp. It is a I was going to say, I wouldn't call it a summer camp. Awful institution. But in some ways, it did remind me of my own camp that recently made national headlines for being the place where they had to shut it down after one day and 800 kids tested positive for COVID-19. Wait, you have to tell me more about this. Yeah, so I went to a YMCA camp in Georgia. And as you know, Georgia handling this pandemic, not great. So it was reopened and they just sent all the kids there. And I think it was less than three days for sure. They tested people after one person had symptoms, I think. And like 700 kids and counselors tested positive for coronavirus. Oh my goodness. So it was just making me think about what is your most interesting, insane, angering summer camp experience? Because I have so many. Well, I wouldn't say I have angering summer camp experiences. I largely had good summer camp experiences. For the most part, my like real proper like in the woods summer camp was a Boy Scout camp, which I really enjoyed because I just would bring a stack of books and read books in the woods for a week. My weirdest summer camp experience is that for many years when I was in like elementary school, I attended Girl Scout camp because like parents were counselors at the Girl Scout camp and some of the parents had sons and needed somewhere to put them. So there were like (laughs) different groups based on age, which were different than the names of Girl Scout ranks. I remember so like it wasn't like brownies and stuff. I remember one of them was fly ups. And I don't remember what age group that was, but it was a thing. And so there are these different age groups for girls. And then there was a group called boys. And it was a wide range (laughs) from like five-year-olds to like 13-year-olds. And we just like hung out together and like did some of the camp activities and also just kind of goofed off in the woods. So as a gay kid growing up in the closet in Georgia, you can imagine that that was influential in some of my summer camp experience. I remember when I was in like middle school, this one bully would often like take his pants off and like flap his dick around to try and what? Like find the gay kids and then like threaten to punch them. So that wasn't that great. I often would just become friends with the counselors to the point where during the lights out nap where most of the bad How stuff old are you happened. This again? Like thirteen. Okay. I would go out and sit with the counselors who were all college students because they also knew I was getting bullied and would let me just hang out and not have to go in the cabin. But one of my favorite parts is it was a Y camp. So, you know, the Young Men's Christian Association or whatever. But now the Ys really embraced Judeo-Christian values. So there was a lot of sing-alongs. As much as that is a thing. Yeah. There was a lot of sing-alongs where they just, like, replaced the word Jesus with God. So it was all extremely Christian rock music that we would be singing. But they would just kind of cut out Jesus. And then it's open to everyone to enjoy. Which is, like, such classic Georgia attempts at being (laughs) multi-denominational. It's just, like, everyone believes in God, right? (laughs) This is inclusivity. Inclusivity. And it's, like, you know, everyone's a monotheist. There are no atheists or, like, I think Georgia's after Mexico, India is the most common place where immigrants come from. So, like, a lot of Hindu people went to this camp, too. So, inclusivity. (laughs) And that was just, I saw 
this movie and based off of my bullying and experience, unfortunately, I realized I think the Y had some conversion therapy elements at their summer camp. (laughs) Julia, did you ever go to camp? I did. I went to camp one summer. And this is definitely something that, you know, you experience and you think that was totally normal. Like, this is a thing I did. And then every time this critical memory is unlocked, right? And I talk to somebody about this. I remember how just batshit crazy this is. So we get a letter in the mail after I had gotten some tests done at the hospital when I was like eight or nine. I was like, hey. So you were like recruited. to Yeah, like Akron Children's Hospital was like, hey, you, you have a mild form of hemophilia do you want to go to camp with a lot of people who have much more severe hemophilia (laughs) and my mom was like yeah you should definitely do that just i'll drop you off like it'll be great and i remember so little about it but i remember specifically one we were not allowed to sleep on the top bunk so there are cabins full (laughs) of bunk beds (laughs) i'm sorry with only the bottom bunk filled you know because we're all just fall risks apparently i remember (laughs) and then i remember once and we did like normal camp things like archery we went canoeing we went hiking but there was just did you shoot guns not guns that was part of my camp there were were no (laughs) we shot guns at boy scout there was no there was no guns at bleeding disorder there were no eight-year-olds shooting (laughs) guns No, but we did go for a hike. And I do remember, like, tripping and scraping my knee and then it going, like, full, like, DEFCON 5 because (laughs) we're at this camp for kids with bleeding disorders. This kid is bleeding. And not, like, again... It's not that bad. Like, I, it does not really affect my life. But I just just seeing all these, again, like, college-age students that, for whatever reason, were spending their summer looking after these sickly children <laughs> just started losing their minds. And they had to, like, call my mom and everything. And I'm just like, yeah, I fell. I scraped my knee. Everyone's losing it. I am fine. So it was just, it was like normal camp, but a lot more careful, but in a very chaotic way. <laughs> Yeah, that that was my one and only camp experience. I I did not return. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. That's incredible. So good. Well, I think we should start talking about the awful camp that is Camp True Directions from the film that we are discussing this week. So welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is a podcast dedicated to examining one of the least important in its own way, vital questions of our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what is there. And this week, we are taking a look at the romance of the 2000 conversion therapy camp comedy, But I'm a Cheerleader, uh, and we're joined by Julia. Hello. (laughs) So I had never seen this movie before. Had either of you... No, no I've been not. confronted with it a lot in passing, like dozens of times. Yeah, based off of what I have seen on Twitter, <laughs> it has a very large cult following, yes. <laughs> which I can understand because I really appreciated that this is a movie where the lesbians get a happy ending and no one dies, which is extremely rare. <laughs> right. Which is one of the things that feels kind of unusual about it because so often with queer movies and especially ones about things like conversion therapy, we just had two recently with The Miseducation of Cameron Post and Boy Erased. They are dramas focused on like intense soul-searching trauma. Which is what those camps produce. Right. 
But I enjoy that this movie uses it as a way to poke fun at and point out the ridiculousness that is heteronormative gender roles. I think that's something that's interesting about this movie is that, I mean, it is about homosexuality and that it's characters are gay and are engaging with what that means for their lives, particularly Megan. But this camp is more about presentation and gender roles. It's all respectability. Some of the activities they do, even before the insane end graduation task, are just like washing the floor with dish scrub brushes. I truly appreciate it as they're scrubbing a carpet with like a dish brush where they don't even get the gender roles right in a way. Some of the chores they're doing are just wrong, which I found hilarious. Well, everything at this place is made of plastic. (laughs) Because it has to be as pristine as possible. There's that vision of Mary, the head of the camp, watering plastic flowers. Because if you have something that is actually alive, it'll go outside of its box. Which is really what this movie is kind of engaging with. The idea that living things are not going to be neatly put in place. But Mary and her rigid gender roles and ideas are insisting that everything fit quite neatly. One of the most disconcerting things about this movie is Melanie Linsky using her real accent. I don't know if that threw off either of you, but I was just like, I don't think I've ever seen her speak without a fake American accent. She plays Hillary, who is the goody two-shoes of the camp, I guess. The one most committed to becoming straight. Yeah. Julia, what did you think of this movie? I was curious what you would, like, think. As someone who, you know, as a gay man, I have experienced different (laughs) experiences, so... Um, I will say, first of all, it was much less problematic than I thought it would be, just in general. I was blown away by how comfortable I was watching it. Like, I was just waiting for something horrible to come up and just be like, ooh. But I was like, no, this is aged, I feel like, pretty well for 20 years. I mean... There, of course, there are no bi people at this camp. It is just strictly homos. And one hetero. And one, yeah, of course. <laughs> one hetero. <laughs> Which is one of the movie's better yeah. jokes. That so many of the people are here not having identified as queer in any way before arriving at the camp. Yeah. And we have this one person who, like so many of them, is assumed to be, but just likes softball and has a short yeah. hair. in <laughs> baggy clothes. But yeah, I will, and I'll, I'll get into this more later, but... Just the the amount of yearning in this movie, I feel like really captures the the women loving women experience. And I do listen to a lot of Mitski. I need this to so to. <laughs> not only have I been in relationships with women, but I listen to so much Mitski. So I do know a thing or two about yearning, and I just really enjoyed just the the amount of it. It really it made it very real for me. <laughs> this is the. Best yearning in a comedy I think I've ever seen. Best comedic yearning by far. I think that's something that's particular about this movie, though, which, and we've we've mentioned this before, but how light it manages to be Mm -hmm. with the stuff that it's engaging Mm -hmm. in. And that's something that its director, Jamie Babbitt, talked about a lot when she was promoting this movie, which is that she found that a lot of people, and I think myself included, expected this movie to be much more biting than it was. Like, I expected... Not a sadder movie, but a harsher movie. Something with a little more sting to it. And one of the things she says over and over is like that she enjoys those kinds of movies, but also she likes things that are happy. Yeah, and I think I think as queer people, it is nice sometimes to have a movie that, like, because we know how biting it can be. And it is nice to kind of have a lighthearted take on something so horrible and familiar for a lot of people. 
So it is really nice to see. And just the fact that it's a rom-com yeah about like teenage queer women and not a romance Mm -hmm. it's a straight up rom-com like there is so much humor and stuff even surrounding their relationship but you still get the classic arc of a Mm rom-com of you know yeah it's got a very straightforward rom-com arc Mm -hmm. they meet they flirt they have their moment where they express their feelings Mm -hmm. there's a betrayal and then Mm -hmm. they make up like it follows the exact arc but you don't get that a lot in queer movies because the betrayal is either someone gets AIDS and dies or someone is murdered. Like, those are the usual options. So (laughs) the end of the happy ending is just not there. And it's worth noting that, like, in in the scope of film history, this is coming out in a period where there are more queer movies being made as part of, like, the new queer cinema movement in the 1990s. But even those are movies that sort of like you said, Mark, are trying to draw attention to the humanity of queer people by getting people to empathize with their struggles. Right. And all of that's extremely important. I just think it's important to have rounded movies, Mm -hmm. like a rounded genre of film where you get all the aspects of the experience and that you don't just lead people to think if you are a queer person, all you will do is yearn and die. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I do want to address RuPaul is in this movie. Credited as RuPaul Charles. As Mike, the formerly gay male counselor who is in charge of teaching how to fix a plastic car and chop wood and I guess practice war things. One of my favorite gags in this movie is the plastic cutout of the soldier shooting a man kneeling down. I think my favorite character introduction is RuPaul's when he bounds out of his van wearing like short shorts and a tight t-shirt that says straight is great. It's one of the best character introductions because it tells you everything you need to know about that character. True Directions is such a good name for the camp, too. It is. It also is clearly inspired by Jamie Babbitt's own life. So her mother ran a halfway house for teens with drug and alcohol addictions that was called New Directions. (laughs) Oh, God. Which Babbitt has talked about as being a very positive environment for those teenagers who are wrestling with drug addiction. But so she had that one idea and then in the mid-1990s read an article about somebody who had been to a a gay conversion therapy camp and was working on combining those ideas into a screenplay. And that's where this movie comes from. Do you think Ryan Murphy had heard of this halfway house when he was writing Glee? Because that is the name of their Glee club in the show, New Directions. Honestly, I had forgotten that that was the name of the group in Glee. He probably didn't know about it. Yeah, that would be my guess. He must know about True Directions. Like, yeah, he's definitely seen this movie. Yeah, this movie had so many actors that I recognized, but like are definitely not celebrities. Which I really enjoyed. Like, obviously, Mink Stoll is in it. This is very much a movie Mink Stoll would be in, who's a very frequent collaborator with John Waters. Sure, but and we also have, like, effectively cameos by Michelle Williams and Julie Delpy. Right. And then Dante Brasco, who is the voice of Zuko, as soon as he opened his mouth at the camp, I was just like, <gasps> Prince Zuko! <laughs> I paused What it. about your honor? <laughs> I paused it and I was like... Oh no, this is the voice of Zuko. Like, where? Where is this going? Who, I loved his character too. Oh, I'm obsessed. Dolph. (laughs) Whereas, like, honestly, for me, the biggest, like, recognition one in this movie is just that I associate Clea Duvall so strongly with her character from Veep. Yes. 
Exactly. Oh my gosh. That then, to have her also playing a somewhat similar character here. I mean, all of her characters, I think, are inspired by Clea Duval herself. <laughs> Just a yes, cool, this is a cool stoic lesbian. Just the absolute coolest. <laughs> her role could not have been better cast. It's fantastic. And so she had an existing relationship with Jamie Babbitt. She had starred in a short film called Sleeping Beauties that Babbitt had screened at Sundance a year or two before But I'm a Cheerleader came out. And it was actually there that Babbitt was working to sort of start getting this movie made. She, like I had said, had had this idea based on her mother's halfway house and this article about conversion therapy. And she worked with her producer and then girlfriend, Andrea Sperling, to put together an idea. They hired Brian Wayne Peterson to write a screenplay for them. And they took the screenplay to Sundance, where they met like a vice president of Prudential Insurance who wanted to invest in a movie. And so he liked the he liked the short that she had there, liked the script, and gave them the money to make this without like a traditional studio. I really appreciated that this movie had a lot of themes that you still don't see much. I loved when, um, I think it was Larry, said there's no one way to be a lesbian, where the movie did not have her, like, realize that her cheerleader persona was her faking it, and she, you know, puts on her Doc Martin boots and a flannel as soon as she comes to term with who she is. <laughs> she continues to be who she wants to be, and is applauded for that, even if she doesn't fit into the stereotypical mold that you saw a lot in media at the time. And I think that definitely comes from having a director who is a queer woman herself. Like, when I looked up and saw that the director's name was Jamie, I was like, oh no, it could be a man or a woman. And I was really terrified to click on the Wikipedia page and find out that it was directed by a man. Mm -hmm. But thank goodness. Yeah, I think that that experience can be seen in this movie. I think this is very much a first movie in that there are a lot of ideas and some are more fully developed than others. But it has an undeniable like sense of authorship in the way that you know, we've brought up the plasticness of true directions, but also just the use of like color and the surrealness of some of the way the movie is shot. Like this is clearly one person's vision. Right. The garishness of the pinks and blues at True Directions almost hurts your eyes to look at the amount of pink and blue that they have on screen. But it works really well because it highlights how unreal that place is and its expectations are. Right. I really appreciated the production design. I was reading and some of the critics were saying that that was one of the reasons that they didn't like it. This movie has a 36% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I agree there's some things that the movie does that could be done better. But also some of the critiques it was getting, I was very much disagreeing with. Like, I think the production design is chosen for very specific reasons that I got the meaning of very clearly. Yeah, I think it's a movie that a lot of people didn't quite know what to do with at the time. I think it didn't necessarily line up with what they were expecting. We've talked a lot about this 1998 to like 2001 surge of teen comedies. Last summer, we looked at Bring It On and 10 Things I Hate About You. This is in the same window as things like American Pie, which we should talk about in relation to this movie. And I think that there's a certain extent to which this one is threading an unusual needle between all of these movies, where its plot is softer than a lot of them, but its visuals are a lot more out there, almost in a way that recalls like some early Burton, Edward Scissorhands kind of things. Right. And I mean, this movie is obviously compared to John Waters a lot, 
And Jamie Babbitt is like, I mean, I like John Waters, but I'm not trying to do John Waters, which is what a lot of people were expecting when they saw that kind of production design, I think. But yeah, that's something that came up a lot there. Not every garish, surreal, queer movie needs to be John Waters. Uh, I know what you were talking about with comparing it to American Pie, because this is something that is still going on, which pisses me off, where the MPAA always rates queer content so much higher in terms of ratings than straight. Like The same situation between two women or two men versus a man and a woman on screen will usually rank it a whole letter higher. Yeah, which I think you can see quite clearly in this movie where it was originally rated at NC-17 and they had to edit it down to get an R rating. And the things that they cut out of the movie were a shot of Graham's hand moving up Megan's clothed body, a pan up Megan's body as she masturbated, and a comment that Megan ate Graham out. Which I think is particularly telling because there is a joke in the movie about oral sex between men. The club is called Cocksuckers. <laughs> like, right. And so the idea that that's allowed to be in an R-rated movie, but a joke about oral sex between women can't, I think, lays that out quite clearly. And Jamie Babbitt was in the documentary, This Film Is Not Yet Rated, where she talked about MPAA's bias against queer stories in general and lesbian stories in particular. It's just so apparent, and I think it's starting to get better, but it's still just like the double standard is still upheld, and you can tell it's because they get so many letters, I guess, from a million moms or whatever it's called. Right, it's an absurd cultural assumption that any story about queer people is fundamentally a sexual story. Right. I mean, this is like one of the tamest sex scenes I've seen in a movie. And it's really well done, but it's still like you watch this and you know that the MPAA was scandalized by the fact that there are two girls touching each other at all. And Babbitt brought up American Pie, which had come out the summer before this as an example. And it is true that American Pie also originally got an NC-17 rating and had to work its way down to an R rating. But American Pie is way more sexual than anything in But I'm a Cheerleader. Oh, for sure. Like, isn't that the movie where a guy, like, puts his dick in a pie or something? Yes, it is. Okay. Hence the title. Yeah, I have not seen it. Uh, it's just insane that it's like these movies are even compared at all, honestly. Yeah, they are teen comedies that came out in a similar time frame. Right. And that's pretty much as far as I would go. I'm trying to figure out what was Portrait of a Lady on Fire rated in the US? I, you know, I don't know. Um, I oh. saw it before its official release at an EU film festival at the AFI Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was rated R. So I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire was rated R, which I think does show that there has been some reevaluation of the standards. Because if that movie was released in the 1990s, in the 1990s or early 2000s, it would have been an NC-17 for sure. Absolutely. So I do appreciate that there has been some evolution on the issue. But I do think that the idea that two queer people are in a relationship is given a sexual angle by the MPAA, no matter how sexual it actually is. For sure. Speaking of sex, though, I want to talk about my favorite fact about this movie, which is that they were really worried about backlash. They knew that people would respond to this movie and potentially negative ways. Their first choice to play Megan actually dropped out because she was worried about her family's reaction to her being in a lesbian movie. But their biggest concern was when they were filming. For starters, they were shooting across the street from where the local pastor lived (laughs) and were really nervous that he would find out and rile people up. 
But also, the town got really mad because they found out the title, but they spelled it wrong. So they believed the movie was called But I'm a Cheerleader, but with two T's, and they thought an anal porno was being shot in their town and worked really hard to get it stopped. (laughs) I mean, I can kind of get that. You add that second T and it really does sound (laughs) like it has a very, uh, very different connotation. Yeah. Uh, that would be a different movie. Yeah. I think we also do need to bring up the fact that somehow Natasha Leone is not a lesbian in real life, which I always forget, especially after watching Orange is the New Black, where I think she's really well cast in this, and it's like, oh, it's so great. And then I'm like, oh, wait, they did not get a lesbian to play the lead of this movie as much as I forget, which, you know, is definitely a problem. But it's so annoying because Natasha Leone does such a good job in it. And it sounds like she's always smoking, you know, like three cigarettes a day instead of three cigarette packs a day, as she does now. Well, she's like 19 in this movie. (laughs) I mean... 19 in 2000. Yeah. I don't know if she actually smokes, but I'm just talking about her voice. Because she has that raspy quality. That that is true (laughs) that she does. I love her so much. So, uh, Mark, like you said, this movie had a fairly mixed to negative critical reception when it came out. Roger Ebert was probably its most high-profile advocate, in which he argued, ultimately correctly, that it would probably become a cult midnight movie favorite. Um, It premiered at TIFF in 1999, and it was released on July 7th, 2000. It never got a massive release, and it also did not make massive amounts of money. It ultimately made... $2.6 $2.6 million against a million-dollar budget, but there are a lot of anecdotal reports that it did quite well in video rentals. I mean, it also probably still gets some money when I'm sure theaters still show it occasionally. Yeah, like, It's probably a movie that's still making money sometimes. I love that Roger Ebert is someone who is either so right or so wrong. But even when he's wrong, he's interesting. I really appreciate him, but it's so funny because he will, like, hit the nail on the head with a movie like this and then turn around and say, Phantom Menace is the best Star Wars movie. (laughs) And Phantom Menace has some interesting technological things going on. But he just, like, raved about that movie, and it's honestly one of the funniest things. I think he is such an interesting critic. Oh, he absolutely was. Is he dead? Yes, he died a number of years ago. Oh. But he, oh, that's just his website that has his name. Yeah, his website is still a home to film critics. Matt Zoller Seitz is the editor-in-chief there now, but Roger Ebert has been dead for quite a few years. Oops. But it's not a situation, like, none of the reviews are signed Roger Ebert. It's not like Herman Cain's Twitter account, which has continued (laughs) to deny the existence of coronavirus after Cain's death of COVID. What a world that we live in. Oh my god. I think this is the point where we need to acknowledge that it is September. This episode comes out in mid-November. Oh, right. no. So, (laughs) that's the world we live in. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if that is still a relevant comment in (laughs) mid-November. I'm sure it will be, but, you know. Oh, my God. Oh, no. All right. So, should we start breaking down the romance of this movie? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So, every week, we break down the romantic plotline of the movie we're talking about into five points to help us just focus in on those most important romantic details relevant to our mission. So, Julia, as our guest... You're going to be in charge of guiding us through the romance of But I'm a Cheerleader. Okay, so basically this movie opens a lot of 
gratuitous shots of cheerleaders, very close-up shots of cheerleaders to kind of get in the head of our main character here, who... It's all boobs yeah, and boobs butts. Yeah, boobs and butts only, both, everything great. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of crotch shots, too, and the jumps and everything, but um, basically, we're showing this to get in the head of our main character, Megan, and we're giving a little perspective into that, and a lot of scenes of her having not an incredible time kiss i don't even know if i would call it kissing that is the grossest movie kiss it's fantastic it's like all just like aggressive tongue her eyes are bugged out of her face it's not like her eyes are open it's like her eyes are trying to launch themselves into orbit as her boyfriend is just kind of licking her Honestly, like aggressively licking her mouth. Yeah, it is absolutely repulsive and it is no wonder why she doesn't enjoy it. But so we're shown this. Well, also because she's I mean, this could be either or. We're afraid you're being influenced by a way of thinking uh, and unnatural. Do you remember the woman on TV? Honey, we think you're a lesbian. No, so we're shown this, uh, we're shown some shots of her locker next to a, a friend of hers who has, you know, just some classic pictures of men taped up next to Megan's locker with pictures of women in underwear taped up. We're given this all to lead up to the, the intervention. So what is it, like the day before the big game, or, or the day of even, I can't remember. She's like driving home with her boyfriend, gets there. So her parents are there, her friend, her locker buddy, we'll call her, is there, the boyfriend is there, and they all sit down to tell Megan point blank that uh, she is in fact a homosexual. I think one of my favorite jokes in this scene is when they hold up the Melissa Etheridge poster and just say <laughs> homosexual <laughs> propaganda. It's iconography. It's gay iconography. Iconography. <laughs> <laughs> So this thing of, like, everyone telling her, like, you're a lesbian, and she's like, no, Mm -hmm. I'm not, is partially inspired by Jamie Babbitt's Mm -hmm. life, where she spent high school with people being like, you're a lesbian, right? And she's like, no, I'm I'm not a lesbian, in part because she had this idea that there's a particular way that lesbians should appear and present. And she's like, well, you know, she basically had a vision that lesbians were all quite butch in appearance and she's like well i'm not she tells this story in an interview about coming out to her mother and her mom's response is like but you were always bad at sports (laughs) oh boy (laughs) anyway this is where rupaul charles as former gay mike puts her in a van and takes her to true directions i think i did love that line where he just you know as we said comes bounding in and goes i was once a gay (laughs) it's just perfect this is rupaul's and best also performance tells you the tone that that portion of the movie will take where it's not doing the boy erased like i have suffered from homosexual attraction mm-hmm. yeah rupaul usually i'm not a fan of his acting like i couldn't even bring myself to watch his new netflix show but in this i was surprised that i actually enjoyed his performance the tone is heightened enough that his inability to not be RuPaul at all times works. <laughs> he was able to yeah. be just RuPaul enough that, yeah, I think it does a great job. This movie is set in, like, the 1970s, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly a 60s aesthetic, 60s, mm-hmm. 50s, and 70s mishmash <laughs> aesthetic. The hairnet that she wears when she goes oh to bed God. is 
truly wonderful. And just all the decorations in her parents' house, they're like hideous wallpaper and wood paneling everywhere. Every, like for those early sequences until RuPaul shows up, everything is orange or brown except for her bright pink cheerleader yeah. uniform. They were all wearing um, brown when they kind of had the little intervention for her. The cheerleading practice, again, no adult coach. Just like in Bring yes! It On. <laughs> what is happening? This is like the most dangerous sport and they never have adults there. Yeah. I know in, in at least in Ohio specifically, you're not even allowed to do like the, the lifts and like throwing each other and stuff because it's too dangerous. And they're doing it completely unsupervised. Yeah, those kids are going to die. <laughs> Especially just because, like, the angles we're getting, it seems like Megan is low down in these formations, and she's really horny. Yeah, and she's <laughs> supposed to catch them. Right. She's not going to. She's not paying attention. No. Oh, my God. Someone's going to so, get kicked. So Megan makes it to camp where we meet all of the other campers, and I really enjoyed some of the campers' performances, for sure. I like all the reasons that they're gay. Oh, oh that my is gosh. The Roots... Are. So I think I w- this is our point number one, right? Yeah. Um. Yes. It, yes. It's going into point number one, which was admitting to being a homosexual. Which is right because this is a five-step program. Yeah. yeah so step, step one, one, admitting admitting that you are a homosexual, and finding the root cause of your homosexuality. Yeah. I'm Graham, and I like girls a lot, and um, I'm a homosexual. Okay, what, what were your favorite roots? I think my favorite route was I was born in France. Mine is definitely my mother got married wearing pants. Yeah, I think that was mine too. <laughs> but I was born in France. But this is where we first see Graham mm-hmm. is in these meetings. And she's clearly the cool one. Oh, yeah, she's cool. She's not bothered. She's not engaging. She's just she's just brooding. Right. She's going to ride out this, like, however long, like, two months or whatever it is yeah. thing, and then just go back and live her life. Exactly. Just loving women. And there is some, like, early flirting. Mm-hmm. In part, you get the sense that Megan is taken aback by how comfortable Graham appears to be, and Graham enjoys pushing that, but they are clearly having some nice times together. Yeah, I think there's a wink at some point, right? There is a cheeky wink. That's why I was a like, cheeky yes. wink. This is the beginning. It happens. They all kind of go after um, Megan. You know, she she comes to terms with it. She admits she's a homosexual. And everyone, if I'm remembering correctly, kind of goes over and is like hugging and clapping for her. And Graham just hangs back, winks, and just, and just gets out of there. <laughs> it's all those looks. Mm-hmm. It's part of the yearning, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's all, it all comes back to yearning. This is a very light yearning at this point. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll get there to the real, the real yearnings just coming up. I'm looking at my notes and I think one of my favorite lines was when Mary, who runs the camp, <laughs> is admonishing the girls for being gay. And she's trying to get them to adopt more traditionally feminine behaviors. And she says, women have roles. After you learn that, you'll stop objectifying them. As though the problem... (laughs) The problem that they are having is that they're just objectifying women too much. Oh, Mary. Her performance as the head of the camp is just so funny. Mary's played by Kathy Moriarty. Yeah. (laughs) I think this brings us to point two. Okay. So point two, we have some time. What is it? Megan's getting more comfortable at camp, or I guess less... 
more and less comfortable at camp and with herself uh, simultaneously. That's the wrong tab, okay? Will you please hold it still while I'm doing this? You're doing it all wrong. No, I'm not. If you would just give it to me to do, it would be fine. And then we see some moments between her and Graham. We see them sitting together during free time. We see Megan very closely watching Graham, uh, like, rinsing her mouth out in the bathroom. <laughs> Gets a very sensual, just, I don't want to call it dribble, but just... <laughs> Water There's a lot of drool in this <laughs> There's movie. There's a lot of drool. Oh, yeah. So get, I'd say... <laughs> they get paired together to do all their chores. Yeah, their arms are like kind of... Like scrubbing the carpets. Yeah, their arms are kind of linked while they're while they're scrubbing the carpets. And then lumped in with this, I also put um, Graham defending Megan after she kind of rats on two of her fellow campers for kissing which she's doing to avoid them bratting on her openly masturbating <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> exactly well, they have these aversion devices at the camp oh, that have these lights that go off and like they kind of buzz and i think you're supposed to hit it as like an aversion thing when you feel turned on but they just look like dildos right i mean it's kind of implied that Sinead is getting off with the <laughs> right yeah. she's using it as a vibrator <laughs> yeah I mean, she loves, she says she loves pain. I think that was in her self-introduction. <laughs> it's a big win-win for her. <laughs> she has what that and she has, I think, one of Graham's socks. The first time we see her with the, the aversion device under the covers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but right, yeah, there's the night that Megan goes and is masturbating in Mary's office. <laughs> right. <laughs> and finds the two dudes making out on the floor in there. Dolph and Kendall. And Megan basically gets Dolph expelled from camp. And then Kendall is put in solitary confinement, which is a doghouse with a lock on the door. A literal doghouse with a little picket fence around it. The imagery was just far too much for me to handle. He has to completely crawl into it. He is so tall. And they just leave him there for, was it a week? Yeah. Pretty much the rest of the yeah, movie, the, yeah. The entirety of the movie, yeah. He stays until until the end. He's allowed to come out, I'll say. I think this brings us to point three. They've done their flirting. Brings us to point three, which is where we get some big time yearning. And this is really when when we're finally getting it. You didn't tell me you were taking me to a gay bar. Where else would we go? So they go, they sneak out. After much hesitation, Megan decides to join most of the rest of the gang. Take a trip to uh, the cocksucker. The town. Which is the local gay bar. The local gay bar, yes. And only oral sex joke. So they go. I gotta say, this is the second movie that I've watched in the last couple of weeks. Where there is, like, a gay bar effectively next to a religious camp. Because I watched this movie, it's, like, not terribly good, but a 2020 release called Yes, God, Yes, which is about a girl in Catholic school who learns to enjoy masturbating. And, like, runs away from a retreat to the gay bar next door. And so I couldn't believe I was seeing this twice in a row. I do have to say, Cocksucker is a actual perfect depiction of a small town gay bar. 100%. That could have been in Akron, Ohio. or That could have been in Knoxville, <laughs> Tennessee. Like, mostly empty space with a dance floor where there's not that many people dancing and then one bar. One bar. The lights are, like, a little too bright, honestly. For what's happening inside. You can see a little too much going on. It's too much. I loved it. (laughs) Yeah, so we see Megan and Graham are standing by the bar. Megan gets asked to dance, says no, but then at Graham's kind of kind of motivates her just to go and dance with her, I guess. The other girl. So Megan's dancing with this girl, and then we see Graham dancing with Sinead. And then the entire time these two couples are 
are dancing together, you just get all the maximum amount of yearning of them just gazing at each other, obviously wanting to dance with each other. I loved that everyone is doing middle school sway dancing to house music at this bar. (laughs) Which I kind of buy for some of the kids at the, like, conversion therapy thing, because, like, for Megan dancing with a woman this way is new mm-hmm. it's weird that the like other people there are also doing it i <laughs> like, loved it they are all just awkward high schoolers that don't know <laughs> what to do and definitely have their cross necklaces on underneath their their outfit yeah there's lots of middle school dancing and then of course following this yearning they kind of meet outside out back and then we get the kiss and everything seems to be going uh, pretty well for them. You brought up the cross necklace. It was surprising to me how little religion came up in this movie. Honestly, yeah. So we see I, we see her wearing it a few times. I kept noticing it. But I don't, yeah, religion is never really used, uh, I guess, as a reason for why being gay is bad too much. Which I kind of appreciate. It's so much yeah. more about gender roles than it is yeah. about religion. Which I think allows it to be more fun because you can poke at these social conventions. And it also then creates more openness for, frankly, the characters to more easily come to different points of views. We have that final shot of the parents at a flag meeting. I loved that. Which feels like an easier leap if we haven't spent a lot of time talking about religion. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. One of my friends in college dressed as a P-Flag mom for Halloween, and it was oh, one of my no. favorite costumes. <laughs> oh, no. Dead of vest with the I heart my gay son pin on it. Oh, gosh. All right. So I think we're okay. moving on to point four. Mm-hmm. Point four, yeah. Kind of a natural progression from the kiss. A little while later, we get what I've just dubbed sexy times. I've never felt that way before. Except... Except for what? Don't laugh, okay? Mm-hmm. Except for when I was cheerleading. So, we get our kind of slightly edited, uh, you know, Heavy split. petting more than sex. <laughs> it, yeah, it's definitely just kind of like a lot of awkward touching. You know, it's kind of clumsy, but it's cute. They're nice. They're having a good time. We're it's heavily implied, I guess. That Graham they have says sex that she would love course. to see Megan cheer. <laughs> She would just love to see her cheer. Well, which is also significant um, in the movie as it is, where mm -hmm. it's like, you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah, you can make this, you know, when you do your romantic gesture, as we'll talk about, it can be your style. It doesn't have to be in your flannel and Doc Martens, you know, giving each other stick and pokes. You can cheer for her. (laughs) Okay, we've talked to get folks. Okay, so getting to, like, (laughs) the betrayal. We've talked about the dumb chores that are happening in this place. Mary finds the matchbook from the cocksucker when she is dusting the plastic mattress covers on the bed. Which is an insane thing to do. (laughs) Oh my god. Her chores are always so unnecessary. Watering plastic plants. (laughs) Dusting mattresses. Just another reminder that the truly none of this matters. Right. It's just yeah. her it fixation on going through these motions. Right. So after the sexy times, which I think Sinead walks in on or knows is happening. Definitely. Yeah. Mary is basically threatening to expel both of them from the camp. And we already know Megan's parents have said she can't go home if she is expelled from the camp. And I think the same thing with Graham's parents. But Megan, at 17, 
decides to go off on her own and accept this. But Graham decides to stay and Megan is heartbroken because she thinks they're going to go off together. Yeah, I think it was when they were trying to, when they were addressing why they were all homosexuals. Graham's dad and stepmom kind of say, was it no, no college, no car, no trust fund? I think if she doesn't successfully complete the, the camp. But yeah, Megan's like, okay, yeah, we're doing this. This is fine. <laughs> you know, we are both going to be gay together outside of this camp. And Graham is, is not quite there with her. So Megan goes to what she had called earlier the Underground Homo Railroad, which is two X True Direction campers. Two XX gays. Two XX gays who have found each other, and they're the ones that bring them to the cocksucker and take in basically all of the people that have nowhere else to go. This is where Dolph has ended up after being expelled, and he shows her that it's cool to be gay. Yeah, like, and it's run by so Larry happy and there. So this is where she's coming to terms with who she is, but she still misses Graham. And she gets some good advice that she can be whatever kind of lesbian she wants to be. Meanwhile, back at school, Graham is getting ready to graduate. (laughs) And this is the weirdest moment in the film where they are all dressed as Adam and Eve in beige bodysuits with fig leaves, and Mary forces them to simulate heterosexual sex. It's like prude midsummer. Right. And in the words of Mary, there's no foreplay. Men go in, unload, pull out. And so it's just like the men just lay on top of women and then kind of vibrate and then get up. And Mary's like, oh, I'm so proud. And one of the people doing this, Graham's partner, is her son. Rock. Which makes it even weirder to watch this part. Gosh, what is it? The the woman opens her legs to reveal the flower, I think she says. God, that's horrible. Oh, God. <laughs> it's this so is when bad. the sex happens. <laughs> Go in, unload, <laughs> pull out. As one does. As one does. Uh, so I think this is our fifth point then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Graduation. One, two, three, four. I won't take no anymore. Five, six, seven, eight. I want you to be my mate. One, two, three, four. You're the one that I adore. Five, six, seven, eight. Don't run from me because this is fate. Graduating. We have the women in white. I love the length of them. Personally, I just think they're hilarious. These white dresses with these, I don't even, like a petticoat underneath. They're very full dresses, very, very fluffy, a lot of tulle. It's very much an ugly wedding aesthetic. It is. And then our male campers are wearing what, like blue latex? They're made of latex. Vinyl suits. It is a Rubbermaid suit. It almost looks like um, There is a snap lid that goes on top of that. Like they're made of duct tape or something. <laughs> Just, yeah. Especially oh. the the absurd bow ties. Comically large. But then they so. all walk down the aisle. Oh, it's it's rough. But then Megan and Dolph break in in camo and somehow no one sees Megan army crawling <laughs> like rolling around on the hill. <laughs> so it's quite the distance for her to just crawl to know, it's so that it's such a long scene too of them shooting back and forth to the ceremony and megan like army crawling across the grass yeah. in blue camo and dolph is successful he is able to lure his boyfriend away from 
the procession. Oh, immediately. Immediately. Right. No trouble at all. It just kind of cuts to them. They're making out. Everything's fine. Cut back to, you know, Megan's still army crawling. Just still going. So she finally sees with Graham's walking down the aisle. And she's about like a quarter of the way through. Megan just, just drags her down. She's just army crawled through a row of chairs. Of course, she's not standing at any point. And all of this in its structure and costuming looks like... I've got to stop the wedding on time in another rom-com. It is still a rom-com. Right, it is such right. a rom-com. It's, just, it's very much playing into that trope, yeah. but in a way where you can't do it because it's not a wedding. Exactly. So we see them kind of have an exchange. Megan's like, all right, like, right, let's go. We're, we're done here. And Graham's like, I don't know what the hell you think you're doing. <laughs> I'm going to keep walking. I'm just about to be straight. So Graham kind of pulls away. And keeps walking down the aisle. She gets her little statuette of, <laughs> what is it, a man and a woman? What are they holding hands? Like a wedding cake topper. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially a little statue, a little trophy form. And Graham just sits down and it, for a second, I, I, I honestly was like, oh, okay, this is sad. This is it. It's not happening. This is a, a sad gay movie because they all are. But then we see a, a callback to when Graham, you know... Uh, was said she would like to see Megan cheer for her. Megan goes and gets her pom-poms and her uniform on very quickly and, you know, does a little cheer for her lady. And we get our happy ending. All right. We talk about this in 10 Things I Hate About You with the poem. <laughs> this is not a good cheer. It is No, not. <laughs> it is not a good cheer. I really honestly loved that it was such a mediocre cheer. <laughs> so bad. Because her whole like poorly done. Her whole identity is that she's a cheerleader and like she loves cheerleading, and then she's just not that good at it. It has the components of a cheer. She she spells things and she moves counts. her arms. She counts and and that's it. And and there it is. Let me tell <laughs> it you is though, a cheer in the original script, like in the script of this movie that they prepared to shoot. Mm-hmm. It ended with Megan taking a guitar and singing a song. And the, that doesn't make sense. Right, and the editor, like, looking over the script was like, why does she not do a cheer? And Jamie Babbitt and the screenwriter were like, oh, yeah, that that's what should happen. That, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, she is a cheerleader. just ended with a song. <laughs> I would be so upset. I would be furious if she didn't cheer i'd be pretty mad but then like they get in the back of a pickup truck together and cuddle up (laughs) and we get a we get a happy ending we do and then we see um megan's parents in p flag meeting so uh, clearly she gets to go home too yeah Mm -hmm. which is nice to have confirmation of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right so after watching all of but i'm a cheerleader do you guys find the romance between megan and graham believable I, d- I do. I- I'd say, again, I keep talking about yearning, but it's just such an important part of this. But I think I find it very believable. Like this would have the-, the expectation to me is you would go to a place like this. Of course, you're going to, you know, <laughs> like, of course, this happens. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> no, it makes yeah. a lot of sense. It- yeah. True-, True Directions is just like a hotbed of people coupling up. Oh, I mean, obviously. it's like. They're all sleeping in the same room. You're mm-hmm. pairing them up together to, like, spend time. Of course people are going to get crushes. They're 17 years old. Kind of, like, paradoxical, like, you are being validated in this <laughs> environment. You are meant to invalidate your homosexual feelings. And, like, yes, this is going to happen. And this does very much feel like teenage romance. 
Where mm-hmm. it's like the excitement of new attraction and wanting to know Your everything about this person. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Julia, every week we rate mm-hmm. the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale where zero means we believe none of it. And 10 means mm-hmm. we believe everything that happens romantically. Okay. I'm going to have to give it like a 9 or even a 10. Like, I buy this. Like, I... I, yeah, I, I, I don't yeah. really see where it goes unbelievable. Yeah. Like, it's teen love, and it would happen this fast. Also, it's actually two months that they are together. Mm -hmm. This movie feels like it takes place over a shorter period than it does. Yeah. Which, for queer women, again, is very believable. Can confirm. (laughs) That you don't need two months. You need a week. This would still happen, and I would still give it a nine or a ten. (laughs) I I think I'm going to give it, like, a ten. I really Mm -hmm. don't see where to take points off for it. Yeah. I think I'm a nine because that cheer is just so darn bad. (laughs) (laughs) If if someone said that cheer to me, I'd be like, I have second thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you know what? Okay. Good point. A nine sounds about right. I think we're at a nine. A consensus is at a nine just for the cheer. I think this is fair. (laughs) Uh, Do you think that Megan or Graham is dateable? I, I think they're dateable. Yeah. I think they're certainly dateable for each other. It is the usual thing that we talk about when we talk about these teen movies, which is Mm -hmm. you can feel these characters developing into more fully realized versions of themselves over the next five years. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you think that Graham and Megan will stay together? I don't don't, don't know if they're going to get married or anything, but I feel like they would at least have a nice nice relationship for a little while. I mean, I could easily see a turkey drop in their future. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Julia, do you know the phrase turkey drop? I I am not familiar. We're actually right in the season for them, although many people (laughs) did not go in person to school this year. The turkey drop refers to when people go to college and then come back for their freshman Thanksgiving break and break up with their high school significant other. Okay, I see. No, I can... Yeah. I... mm Mm-hmm. I, I think that could happen. I was an RA for three years in college, and we would see like mm-hmm. many of our students come back from Thanksgiving break bummed out because they had all ended their <laughs> high school relationships. The RAs together, you're just like, drop. <laughs> if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Honestly, I was going to try to think of something funny, but I'm obsessed with Graham, and I would date Graham. Like, I, I would see myself dating like if i was in this movie i would i would date grant she's cool i'm obsessed with her she's very cool also because i'm like that's marjorie i also love marjorie yes, ma'am. <laughs> uh, i think my answer is lloyd one of the <laughs> xx gays he's the short one mm-hmm. of the pair and he okay, seems yeah. very warm and open mm-hmm. and he owns a house which is nice <laughs> he's a homeowner grant <laughs> has a trust fund that's true i think end of movie dolph when he's come to terms with who he is. In the matching be... uh, rainbow top and bottom. Oh, yeah. I'd yeah. Be, I'm so into the rainbow PJs. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed him. He's probably the most grounded character in the whole movie, in a way. Or Rock, mostly because he's very attractive. I mean, Rock is a, is a good choice. All right. So okay. a lot of the movies we cover have been adapted for the stage as musicals. Do you mm-hmm. think... That But I'm a Cheerleader should be put on stage. I don't know if I would say should. Could it? I think definitely. I think it would work. Yeah, I think Bearing it could Bearing in mind, well. I, lo- I know little about musicals. But I think, like, like, it, like, my first instinct is like, yeah, this would translate well. We talked about this with Joe versus the Volcano. But it's just so 
outrageously stylized that you could see <laughs> it working well for fun sets and costumes. And yeah. the emotions of this place are heightened enough that it would lend itself to being put to music. I think so. I agree. And like you have the opening, you could easily do a cheer based song to introduce the plot. Like there's a lot of moments that lend itself. And then you almost have like a chorus line where each character can have their song at the camp to talk about their roots. I want I want the like fun list song about roots, the like Cole Porter style. Yeah. Well, we can find out because the But I'm a Cheerleader musical debuted in 2005 at the New York Musical oh. Theater Festival. Oh my god. This really is an outrageous phenomenon. It keeps happening. (laughs) (laughs) It's seriously insane how many movies have been adapted. There was a Japanese all-female Ocean's Eleven musical. Oh, okay. I need need to watch that. Yeah, There was an (laughs) opera based on the fly. (laughs) Julia speaks Japanese, so I really want you to watch that and then report back. I will definitely report back. That sounds incredible. All right. Well, I think that about does it for... But I'm a cheerleader. Next week, we'll be switching gears pretty dramatically <laughs> to cover a realistic look at the life of a returning World War II veteran readjusting to civilian life. The film, The Best Years of Our Lives, available now on Canopy. It felt kind of thanksgiving eve looking at the legacy of World War II in one of these American holidays. Right. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from But I'm a Cheerleader? Julia? Oh, gosh. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> don't worry. I forget to think of my answer for this every time. I am also now wrecking my brain. I know. I'm like, um... I mean, I think we could take the advice on not changing who you are to fit, you know, a certain label or identity or something you identify with. I think you could just apply that to dating. You know, don't change yourself. Just be yourself and uh, you will be happy. And that is probably the best for everyone involved. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I think if you get the opportunity, date Clea Duvall. Also that I would, I would, I would enjoy that thoroughly, personally. (laughs) Um... You know, I'm having a hard time coming up with one that we have not already covered. And I'm trying to find stuff. I'm just looking at my notes and I'm just seeing other things that I wrote down. Like, Mary's son is as straight as Hank Azaria in the birdcage. <laughs> <laughs> I love rock. Or I-, I love all these dudes for sports in pennies with no shirts underneath them. Oh, I have um, just in quotes, we don't use profanity or double negatives here. <laughs> I have almost lost her to college in quotes. The liberal arts brainwashing. (laughs) Or when they called their clothes at the beginning civvies. Like, you can earn the right to wear a civvy. Well, because she's wearing that hideous, like, green rag. (laughs) Sack. I know, but I was like, civvies. They called them soldiers for a bit. Um, I would say that my dating advice is that even chores can be sexy if you're doing them with a sexy person. Mm. Mm. Also, learn to kiss. Don't be like her boyfriend at the beginning of the movie. Boy. (laughs) All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Bye.
running.